and welcome to Ask Me Anything. This is a podcast about our faith, the Bible, what it means to be human, and following Jesus. I'm Dan Gillis, the Young Adults Pastor at Village Church, and today I'm joined by Tom Wright. Tom is a New Testament scholar and a brilliant author of many books, including Simply Jesus, Surprised by Hope, and After You Believe. Tom, welcome to the podcast. It is such a privilege and honor to have you with us today. I'm fun to be with you, and greetings to my friends in Western Canada. Uh, well, Tom, um, it is super early here in Canada. It's about 5.30 in the morning. We're both having coffee. And today we're going to be talking about God and the pandemic. Um, Tom, you have a new book with that exact title called God and the Pandemic. I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about the book that you wrote. Well, the book happened by accident really quite quickly because at the beginning of the whole pandemic thing, um, a colleague who I've worked with before on Time magazine called and said, would I please write a short piece, just 800 words or so, on how a Christian might approach the whole question of the pandemic. So I didn't want to do it because I was busy with other things, but I thought, well, I think of something to say. And if Time magazine asks you to write an article, normally the answer is yes. <laughs> so I bashed out what I wanted to say. And the main thing I wanted to say was watch out for the over simple, simplistic solutions like um, this is God calling us to repent of ABC, you fill in the blanks, whatever it might be, or this is the sign of the end of the world. And I said, uh, no, this sends us straight to that passage in Paul where he says, we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit groans within us. And I said, that's the point, that Christianity doesn't give you the answer why this is happening. It tells you what to do, and that always begins with lament. So that, that was what I said in those 800 words. And I got a lot of flack. People um, emailed or put things on Twitter or whatever, and I don't do Twitter myself, but friends kept telling me about it, to say, oh, N.T. Wright has forgotten what the Bible says, and read the prophet Amos, or read Deuteronomy, and this is what it means. So then people started interviewing me, and I started saying other things and developing it a bit. And then I said to the publishers, do you know what? I've been figuring out a bit more that I want to say here. What about it? And they said, well, have a go and see what happens. And so I took a couple of days and I just bashed out what I've been saying to people online and on the phone and so on. And it turned into this book that turned into a book focused on Jesus. I do a whole bunch of stuff about the Old Testament. Um, but really, the whole point about the prophetic literature of the Old Testament is that it rushes forward to the point where Jesus himself emerges and is there as the fulfillment of the, of the prophets' uh, hopes and promises and dreams. But Jesus himself does it differently. He says, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents that he was born blind. It was so that God's works might be revealed in him, and so on and so on. And ultimately, Jesus dies on the cross, shouting out, my God, why do you abandon me? And it seems to me so often we have tried to start with a picture of God, that God ought to be in control, and if he, if he seems not to be, we are worried that our faith is shaking. And the New Testament says, no, start with Jesus and work out from there. So mm. that's what I've tried to do in the book. Mm. So I, I, I love that. And I love that Romans 8 passage where the yeah. spirit it groans within us and, and necessarily doesn't have doesn't necessarily have the words or the answers. Um, and, and that yeah. is to be to be brought into tension with, you know, the the verse 28 passage where it says that God works all things for good. And so sometimes well, we can just jump into an oversimplified well, answer there. But it's, I mean, since you bring it up, let's go straight there, because that in a way is one of the most 
important points in the whole book because the first draft of the book i was dealing with romans 8 26 and 27 particularly whereas you say the spirit uh, is groaning within us with inarticulate groanings in other mm. words the spirit doesn't have words to say and god the father the heart searcher knows what is the mind of the spirit but the mind of the spirit is still inarticulate and mm. so it's no shame if we are inarticulate as well and in fact it's worrying when christians think that they do know all the answers straight off the top um, but then Romans 8, 28, I've done some more work on this, and a couple of my former students have been working on this as well. And it's quite clear to me now that, uh, yes, God is the subject of the sentence, that God works all things. But the word for works is synergy. He works with, and then the those who love God bit is the people with whom God works. And the loving God bit refers back to that sense of being caught up in the inarticulate love of God in the previous two verses. In other words, God works with that loving him, even though it's inarticulate process, to bring about what is good, not God works everything out so that we, the ones who love him, can be assured that we're all right, even if the world, world's in a mess. And that's a really important turn, maybe even a twist in the argument, compared with where much Christianity, including what I was brought up with, has tended to go. I mean, the King James Version said, um, uh, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, mm -hmm. which is almost stoic. You know, it's just everything works together. And as long as you love God, it'll pan out for you. And I want to say, hang on. There are devout Christians in refugee camps on some deserted Greek island right now. There were devout Christians who were um, butchered by ISIS on the Libyan coast. Um, was that working all things together for good? Is that what you mean by that? And I want to say rather God works all things together for good through those who love him, hmm. who are often called to share in the sufferings of Christ so that something may come as a result of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think rereading Romans 8, which has been one of the joys of my life, reading Romans and particularly chapter 8, I go on learning more. And that's that's where I am with that at the moment. And that is really at the heart of the book. Tom, that is so brilliant. And and I think that is such a a contrast to the way that we often interpret that is, is what you're just saying. Like, Absolutely. okay, it's just going to work out. It's going to, in the end, it's just going to work out. We love God. But yep. in other yep. words, what you're saying is, you know, and I think this is, this shows up often in your, your writings that God is looking for people to partner with him to bring yep. about the kingdom yep. on earth. Yep. And I think that's what Jesus was on about. And yes. And one of the dangers with that is that because we believe as I do passionately in justification by grace through faith, the idea of God working with people, people sometimes say, oh, no, no, that's works. We mustn't do that. And that's a complete misunderstanding. That's not about how you get justified. It's yeah. about the fact that when the spirit is at work, then the spirit makes you a partner with God so mm -hmm. that the operation of the whole Trinity is going forward catching us up within it. And that, of course, comes straight out of Genesis 1, when God makes humans in his own image so that he can be doing what he wants to do in his world through the humans. They are looking after God's world on God's behalf. And Romans 8 comes in exactly that. This is what it now means to be human. Mm -hmm. Granted the fall, granted the work of Jesus, and granted the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's there's even within the cultural mandate there in, in, in Genesis that the, the humans are to have dominion. 
that they are Absolutely. to be, you know, God's representatives of his kingdom here on earth. And I, love, I think that the works bit is really important as well, because in Ephesians chapter two, we read that, you know, we're not saved by works, but we're saved to good works. And I think All that's a works. really important uh, distinction for our, our listeners is that, yes, God, yeah, yeah. good works are good. And God has called us to join him in the good yeah. works that he's yeah. unfolding yeah. in this world. That's, that's exactly right. Sorry, my phone's just talking to me for some reason. I have no idea why, so let me just switch that off. Um, these funny things happen. Yeah, that, that verse in Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10, is mm-hmm. so important because in Paul's world, the phrase good works wouldn't mean good moral works, the keeping of the law. It would mean benefactions. It would mean that if you're somebody who is known for good works, it doesn't mean that everyone's looking at you and saying, oh, what a goody-goody he or she is. It means this is somebody who does good in the neighborhood, who looks out for the poor, who helps when there are major projects going ahead, um, who who is watching out for what needs to happen in this society. And that was what, that was in the DNA of the early Christians from the very beginning. Hmm. Tom, I I love that. And and I think that reveals a a lot to our listeners and and even to myself about the the very nature of God's goodness, working through his people to bless the world. It's very much what we see in Genesis 12 and 15 with Abraham. It's what we see with Jesus and the disciples. And I really believe it's what we see in the eschatological people of God in the New Testament. Um, But I I just was wondering if we could switch the conversation just a little bit. And um, I'm wondering if you could speak to the, the very... I think it's an intellectual conversation, but I think it also is an emotional conversation. Um, I'm wondering how we can fit something like COVID-19 and this pandemic um, and human suffering with this good and loving God that we're talking about. Like, how should we think about God in the midst of something like this, where there's um, physical illness and pain, there's suffering, um, there's evil? You know, how can this exist in the creation of a, a very good and loving father? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This takes us right back to some very deep and rich theological questions, some of which I've tried to write about in my Gifford Lectures, a much bigger book uh, called History and Eschatology, which came out last year. I don't know if you know those, but that was that was a very exciting thing for me to do, to be able to put out a big, chunky project like that. And uh, one of the things that struck me as I was doing that, exactly on this topic, is that it's only really from the 18th century onwards in the Western world that Christians have asked the question that way round. You know, um, Augustine knew that earthquakes happen. Um, Origen and Aquinas and Chrysostom knew that pandemics happened. Uh, They knew that people died from horrible uh, natural disasters or, or sicknesses or whatever. And as far as I'm aware, there's hardly ever any suggestion among the great Christian thinkers of every age until our own that, oh dear, this might be a problem about our doctrine of God, Mm -hmm. because it really, really wasn't. They accepted that the world as it was, was, as Paul says, groaning in travail, and that Christians, like everybody else, were caught up within that. And it seems to me this is a peculiarly modern problem where we have accidentally slipped into treating God as the one who invented this machine in the first place and the machine's supposed to be working well so if something goes wrong with it then we blame god and say what's what's the matter with it yeah um and that is a very 17th or 18th century idea of god as the clockmaker the watchmaker um uh, and if the clock's telling the wrong time oh it must be god's fault 
But actually, life has always been much more mysterious than that. And every generation until our own has known that most human beings die when they're young. Mm -hmm. And we today, we assume that we're going to live our three, four years and ten. Actually, I'm one over that already now. Um, And that if somebody dies at the age of 20 or 30 or 40, we say, how terrible, what a tragedy. How could God Mm -hmm. have allowed that? And, And we need to get some historical perspective on this. And particularly, we need to learn from the early Christians, for whom epidemics or even pandemics were quite the norm. And if you read the literature from the second and third and fourth centuries, the Christians developed a way, a strategy of coping with that, not of running away and escaping. That's what everyone else did if they could. Mm-hmm. The rich and the well-to-do, including the doctors, would get out of town and flee to their country homes in the hills and isolate away from germs, etc. The Christians would stay and would nurse people and would look after people, and sometimes they would catch the disease and die themselves, but often they would actually help people get better. And then people would turn around and say, "Uh, why did you do that? They say, we follow this man, Jesus. He gave his life for us. Mm -hmm. So the least we can do is to give our lives to help as many other people as we can. And this was astonishing. Nobody had ever lived like that before. And so the early Christians didn't ask, why is this happening? They assumed that the world was groaning in travel, that the world is not yet as God the Creator desires it to be, mm-hmm. and as he will one day make it. Yeah. Rather, in the present moment of God's history with the world, all sorts of things have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And the, the answer is not why, but what. Yeah. Um, and, and the what includes the very practical, what is the Holy Spirit leading us to do now? which Mm -hmm. often translates into who is just down the street from me who needs my help and how can I go and and help with that? So So it's a realignment of the question, really. Yes, and and it's it's entering into that working all things together that we read about in Romans 8 with God Mm -hmm. as as participants. And, um, you know, the Bible and the, the worldview of the Bible doesn't always answer this question quite as clearly and neat and tidy as we would like it. Sometimes there's really clear sections in the Bible and then other parts that are unclear. Like we just start reading, you know, Genesis and all of a sudden there's this evil serpent and there's chaotic waters and there's all of these different, you know, elements. And we're like, oh, the world isn't as it should be. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament and teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer where where he says, pray that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that God's kingdom would come as if there is parts in this world where God's will isn't yet fully done, or the way that it is in heaven hasn't fully reached down to, be sure, to earth. To be sure. And, and it, it's, I think it's a very modernist post-enlightenment perception, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, the, the post-enlightenment secular philosophers want to try to tell us that this is now the best of all possible worlds. We've got the enlightenment, we've got modern science, we've got medicine, technology. Therefore, it's just a matter of a few little mopping up operations here and there. Yeah. And we're, we're, make, we're creating utopia. And that always was an attempt to steal the Christians' clothes, the Christians' eschatology about the new heavens and new earth, without paying the price of allegiance to the Christian God. And then Christians in the Western world kind of come in on the act, and because we've mostly, since the Second World War, most of us have grown up in a reasonably comfortable, reasonably affluent world, um, we just assume this is the norm. Mm -hmm. And so if something disrupts or disturbs our comfortable world, we get horrified as though um, the, the whole system has fallen apart. And the answer is no, wake up, smell the coffee. This is normal, actually. Um, and now we understand 
what happened when Jesus turned up and came and, as you said a few minutes ago, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. Mm -hmm. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, yeah. Jesus still wept. And I don't think that was fake. It wasn't put on for the sake of Mary and Martha and so on. I think there's a real grief at the heart of God incarnate. Mm -hmm. And John's Gospel makes it very clear that the, the Jesus who we see weeping at the tomb of his friend is the one who then says three chapters later, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. What? Yeah. Does God the Father weep at the tomb of his friend? Well, I think that's what John is telling us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and, and I think this brings us back to what you said earlier, that when we look at God, we need to first start with Jesus, uh, because he is the, the perfect picture of what God is like. And so when we see him weeping at the tomb of his friend, when we see him um, crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? We, we yeah. realize that this is what God is like. And this is really the starting point so that we can begin to interpret and understand the rest of the Bible. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I have to preach uh, next week on the Trinity uh, for, for one of the places to which I'm attached. And it's just going to be a short sermon. It, it's an online thing and, and everything is a bit shorter. Um, but I really want to talk about that in terms of the pandemic, that um, uh, if you think of God, the watchmaker, and you say, oh, help, it's all gone wrong. And then some Christians would say, never mind, because Jesus saves our souls so we can go off and live somewhere else called heaven with him. And that is absolutely not the point. Mm -hmm. The doctrine of the Trinity is precisely the doctrine that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, yeah. and then by his Spirit, enabling us to be agents of reconciliation in the present. Mm -hmm. And so the Trinity, mysterious though it is, helps us understand what it means to live precisely at a moment like this, and maybe joggles us out of our easy assumptions of a nice smooth world with a comforting Jesus who will take us somewhere else. Um, maybe this is a time for real theological reflection. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom, you know, you, you speak of this idea where um, the, the gospel is, is, is not that God is coming to zap us out of earth and to bring us to some disembodied space called heaven, uh, but really it's about heaven joining and, and coming to earth. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about that in light of COVID-19, you know, in light of human sickness and pain and suffering and evil, and even what we're seeing in, in America with injustice and, and racial yeah. tension and, and all of that, you know, what is God doing now and even into the future uh, to bring about his kingdom on earth? And what it, what really is the good news that we put our hope in? Right. Right. I mean, the, the first Christians, I think, would have had no difficulty answering that question. They would have said, what God is doing is establishing a community of people in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, because all are one in Messiah Jesus. The world has never seen a family like that before. Mm -hmm. But these people who claim now to be the true children of Abraham, who can live in love for one another, in forgiveness for one another, because God in, in the Messiah and by the Spirit has forgiven them, these people are assigned to the world of God's new creation. That's why Romans chapters 14 and 15 are every bit as important as Romans chapters 1 to 3, which is mm -hmm. where a lot of people sort of get stuck if they're not careful. But 14 and 15 are saying, before the eyes of the watching world, welcome one another across those cultural barriers. Do you know, a lot of the racial tensions in my country and various parts of the world, but obviously at the moment in America not least, have come about partly, not solely, but partly because the church has forgotten 
particularly since the Reformation, has forgotten that it's calling and that what is the meaning of justification by faith is that all those who believe in Jesus belong in the same family, whatever mm -hmm. their ancestry, whatever their skin pigmentation, whatever their moral background. Mm -hmm. And if the church had been able to live like that from day one, then an awful lot of nonsense would never have happened. And we need urgently to recover it. So that's the answer about racial tension and so on. The answer about uh, pandemics and so on is that, as I said before, from the first, the church knew that it was there to be the people of God for the world, mm -hmm. to bring healing and hope to the world, which meant working with the poor, working with the sick. There's a wonderful example going on now in, in, in my country, which has just leaked out into uh, popular consciousness, that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who lives in this great place called Lambeth Palace, the other side of the river from the Houses of Parliament, he has been it was initially secret, but it's now leaked out. He's been volunteering as an extra chaplain at St. Thomas's Hospital next door to where he lives. So he goes in day by day and he puts on the protective clothing and he is quietly praying with and being with people who are dying, people who've got relatives who are dying, with the doctors and nurses who are traumatized by it. Uh, I, so if you want to know what God is doing right now, he's out there on the front line ministering to people and God is active in the work of doctors and nurses. So the, 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 we need to recover the Christian vision of working with and for the poor, of working with and for the sick, of working in education, but mm -hmm. also of being a community of all those who believe in Jesus, an outward facing a community for the world, modeling a new way of being human. Mm -hmm. And insofar as this idea of God taking me off to heaven has lessened the emphasis on that new way of being human, it has actually detracted radically from the church's witness. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, I think that is, in, in your words, the inbreaking kingdom of God we're beginning to see, not just, not just in the pulpits, not just as a few professionals, on a stage, but through people with different vocations, different stages of life, we're, we're beginning to see the kingdom of God come to earth and, and beginning to see what it looks like when God truly is in charge. When we offer a, a cup of water in Jesus' name, we, we heal our brother and sister, or, or like your, your friend that you're talking about, who's just putting on the clothes, going in and to be with the sick and the poor and the needy. Yeah. And that is the heart of God. And that's what it looks like uh, when God is in charge. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. Tom, I'm wondering if we could just end our time together um, with just talking a bit um, practically of what it looks like for us as as the people of God, the, the the family of Abraham, to live in this world right now in the midst of a pandemic and, and just in the midst of, you know, the kingdom of God, yes, is breaking in, but isn't here yet fully. So how do we live practically in this moment? Yeah, yeah. The, the answer has to be lament. I noticed that in America recently, there have been some good, shortish, popular level books on lament, drawing on the Psalms of lament particularly. And I, th I think maybe this is a sign that Western culture is turning in a healthy direction because we've tended to focus our Christian life on celebration, on thanking mm -hmm. God for who he is, on what Jesus has done for us. And then if something bad happens, we have a quick moment of lament and, and shed a tear or two, or maybe somebody's funeral, and then we quickly go back to ordinary business, which is celebration. But the celebration becomes very shallow as a result, and often this then just collapses into a sort of complacency. 
And if we use the Psalms, and one of the things I worry about in the contemporary church is that people have forgotten what the Psalms are there for. The Psalms are Jesus' prayer book. They should be our prayer book too. Mm -hmm. And again and again and again, it's the Psalms of lament that the New Testament draws on to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. Paul uses Psalm 44, one of the great Psalms of lament, in Romans 8. Jesus quotes Psalm 42 and 43, my soul is disturbed within me in John 12. And on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22. And there are many other psalms of lament as well, like 88, which is as dark as it gets, and 89, which starts off everything going fine, and then suddenly says, and now it's all gone horribly wrong. And there is no resolution at the end of that psalm. And we need to live with and pray those psalms, because it's out of that lament, back to Romans 8 again, the the inarticulate groanings of the Spirit when we feel we just don't know how to pray through this one. And all we can do is to say, this is terrible. And maybe even just to feel the terribleness of it without even bringing it into words. That then maybe, maybe our minds and our hearts can be realigned to hope for the right things, to move in the right direction, to find the new vocations. That's why in the book I quote from T.S. Eliot in his four quartets written during the Second World War, when he says, stay without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. He doesn't mean there will never be hope. It means that if we grasp too quickly at the sort of hope that we might want, then we are forcing our agenda onto God, as it were, whereas sometimes we just have to stay in the quiet. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. That's mm -hmm. a very hard thing to do, but it's a humility. It's a kind of exile. It's like saying, you know, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And it's only when we get to the point where we recognize our inability that then maybe God has new things to teach us and through us, maybe, please God, to teach the world. So lament is a good place to be. It's not a comfortable place to be. It's not meant to be, but it's a good place to be. And let me say one other thing about that. A lot of people have been asking me about this over the last weeks. In the Old Testament, there are many different narrative strands which seem to be in tension with one another. And one narrative strand says, when bad things happen, it's because God is judging his people because they've been wicked. Yep, that's there. Prophet Amos, Deuteronomy, yeah. uh, Lamentations, the prophets in general, etc. But there's another strand, obviously in the book of Job, but also in Psalm 44 and other places, which says, we didn't actually deserve this. Yeah. We're not going to say we're guilty when we're not guilty. And so those two strands are jangling together against one another in the Old Testament. But yeah. then, actually, what happens is they meet and they merge in the story of Jesus where the righteous punishment of all the world is in fact meted out, that's the mm -hmm. first strand, but the one on whom it is meted out is the sinless Son of God. And somehow, well, this is an exercise in biblical hermeneutics, this is how the story works. When you put Jesus in the middle, the rest of the story makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then when you come out forwards from Jesus, as long as you've started with him, the rest of the story, that is our story, our story right now with this pandemic, that will make sense as well. But it's not the sort of sense we might want. It's the sort of sense that God will gradually reveal to us. 
Tom, that is so wonderful. And I just want to thank you for bringing us back to the gospel. Uh, to read more about this, check out Tom's book, God and the Pandemic. Another book recommendation that would really be helpful to you as well is Simply Jesus. Uh, that's one of my favorites uh, from you, Tom. Um, Tom, it was incredible to have you on the podcast today to speak uh, to us and about these issues. Thank you for being with us. To thank all of our you. listeners, we hope our conversation was helpful and inspires you to follow Jesus. To all of you, grace and peace. Thank you very much. Thank you.